This week's podcast proudly brought to you by Kent Cartridge. See, I made the mistake of buying the cheapest shot shells I could find when I first started duck hunting, and I would literally watch feathers fly off of birds as they gave me a middle finger and flew off unscathed. That's when I switched over to Kent, and I was bartending and waiting tables at the time in college, and money was tight, but Kent offered me a great product at a fair price, and I've never looked back. Of course, now we have uh, Fast Deal 2.0. They just released Fast Deal Plus for this upcoming season, and with Dove season on the horizon, we've got Steel Dove, and then Teal Steel for early teal season. Whatever your shotgunning needs are for this fall, Kent has you covered. You can find all of their products at kentcartridge.com. This week's show brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, an organization that I've been plugged into for, gosh, over 15 years now. From the Alaskan wilderness to the Atlantic Flyway, across America's Great Plains, and down the Mississippi Delta, Ducks Unlimited has been leading the way in wetlands conservation since 1937. The DU family has ensured the protection of over 16 million acres of waterfowl habitat. Think about that. So, come join us. You too can carry on DU's conservation legacy. Visit ducks.org to find your local event and join our volunteer team, Ducks Unlimited, the world's leader in wetlands conservation. I got peace of mind and elbow room. I love to smell the sage in bloom. I catch a rainbow on my fishing line. We got county fairs and rodeos. Ain't a better place for my kids to grow. Just turn them loose in the western summertime. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody into episode 692 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. It is great to be here talking hunting, fishing. The great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks. So thanks for dropping by. Uh, one of my favorites there, Chris Ledoux, Western Skies, getting things going for us. And appropriate, too, because I was doing the same thing, catching a rainbow on my fishing line this past week. Uh, it was the 37th annual Mountain Man trip uh, from, it's well, essentially the church I grew up in, but it's my dad and uh, his buddies. And then... Uh, Let's see, 37th annual, I was invited for the first time at 21. I'm 42 now, so I've been going for about 20 years on these things. And we typically either head into the uh, Sangre de Cristos Mountains in New Mexico for a long weekend, or uh, we'll mix it up. And it seems like every fifth year or so, we'll do a Boundary Water canoe trip up in Ontario. But uh, this year saw us back at the Rio Castillo Park, um, which basically centers around the Rio Castillo River. And uh, we were camped up at about 11,000. I think the lake that Dad and I hiked to was closer to 11.5 or 11.6. And keep in mind, he just had uh, hip replacement. But that's not going to keep him from walking uh, over a mile to find the big fish. There was a lake right at our campground. No, fish are too small there, according to Dad. So uh, he limped and I walked (laughs) up to one of the higher altitude lakes. And he was right. The fish were, I mean pound and a half, two pound rainbows. And we kept, uh, there was 13 dudes on this trip. About five of us were fishing and we would keep either four or five fish every day. Uh, that was enough to satisfy, um, the appetites of, uh, of <laughs> all of the mountain men. Uh, we did have a full kitchen. I mean, this, this camp has, this trip has evolved from a, a roughing it experience, hiking in seven miles to Wheeler peak type situation to, you know, as they'd get older, some of them would ride horses, and and now it's uh it's 
where it is today, it's pretty swanky. We we drive up as far as we can. Uh, there's no more putting 50 pounds on your back as uh, a lot of oh the original, the OGs of the trip are now in their 70s, like my dad who just turned 70. Um, so yeah, it's a little more leisurely experience. And we have a full kitchen. We have great meals, <laughs> every meal. And uh, the trout was just a little uh, little supplement of fresh protein to whatever dinner was each evening. Uh, but yes, power bait. That's what uh, these things were biting. Yellow or chartreuse power bait on a treble hook with the tiniest little slipshot weight uh, right there at the base of the treble hook to keep that power bait submerged because they're not going to hit it. It floats. Power bait floats. So uh, if you got about a five-foot leader, so I was using six-pound test with a four-pound uh, fluorocarbon leader, uh, power bait. Like I said, some of the guys tried crickets, grasshoppers. No, power bait. I think I caught 10 trout the first day and like seven this, on day two. And that was in like three hours of fishing. So big, beautiful rainbows. Um, yeah, awesome trip spending time with uh, the old man and one of my brothers in uh, the Sangre de Cristos Mountains. So, Oh, and it was like uh, 70 degrees <laughs> during the day and in the 40s at night. So it's nice to get out of the Texas heat for a long weekend. Um, what are we doing today? Well, you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's beat-up old Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And joining us momentarily is longtime fly fishing guide and uh, one of the higher-ups with the Montana Wildlife Federation. Jeff Lucas will be here. Uh, they recently caught... A couple of smallmouth bass in a stretch of the famed Bitterroot Trout River that are not supposed to be there, and so everyone's up in arms. They've uh, the state has enacted an immediate catch and kill policy. So lots to dissect here, though. Why does uh, why does it matter if smallies are up in that stretch of the river? Huh, I tell you what, the trout fishermen are all up in arms, and for a good reason. So we'll uh, we'll get into that because you know some of these trout are also invasive. So put that into perspective. Where did the smallies come from? How'd they get there? Like an 80 mile journey? Can these smallies even survive the frigid winters in that stretch of the uh, Bitterroot? So much to discuss with Jeff. Uh, and then we will have a, a follow-up interview. This is on the heels of our recent discussion with Mike Leonard of the American Sport Fishing Association regarding shark depredation. And so joining us today is Dr. Kesley Banks, Associate Research Scientist at the Hart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies. Uh, they are conducting some pretty cool shark research with, the, well, they're tagging them and then they're tracking their migrations. Uh, we're trying to figure out, because there's so little known about sharks compared to other species, uh, but, you know, where are they having pups? Uh, where are they breeding? What, what are these, what are they eating? Where are they going? Uh, Try, we're trying to figure all this out. And so Dr. Banks um, will share some insight on shark numbers, research, and then maybe if we have time, we'll even hit on some of the uh, red snapper research that they are doing as well. So, oh, and maybe amberjack too, another uh, highly coveted sport fishing species in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so that's what's on the docket for today. Going to be a good one, guarantee you that. Let's do a quick giveaway. How about a Havilon Talon, highly appropriate because that is the fillet knife that I was uh, taking to those butterball rainbows up there in the mountains this past week. But absolutely love the Havilon Talon fillet knife. 
And we're going to give one away this week. All you need to do to enter the drawing is email the word trout. That's trout to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Let's knock out a break. Up next, longtime fishing guide in Montana Wildlife Federation's Jeff Lucas joins us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Between the almost atoms and broken bones, the dream of a bubble I'll never put on. I'm jaded. Oh, I hate it. But somehow the highs outweigh the If you're looking for a new gun safe, you need to check out the Performance Firearm Storage Solutions from Securit. Unlike traditional safes, Securit products are designed to perform for you. They're lightweight, so you can discreetly store them in any room in the house, and the interior is completely customizable to fit your guns and gear. I would know, I've got four of them. Their fast access storage system keeps my guns and optics organized so they never touch each other or get damaged, and I'm never more than an arm's length away from a firearm. The best part, they're always running great sales. Head over to securitgunstorage.com backslash cable to see their latest promotion, and you can thank me later. Ready on the radio, I won't back down. I called you a brother, but you were closer than my kin. And it kills me knowing you may never pass my way again. But I hope that every now and then. Little American Aquarium bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for dropping by today, as always, as we're all set to head up to one of Montana's famed trout streams. But first, this segment of the show brought to you by Vortex Optics and the all-new Switchback Carbon Tripod. It packs light, adapts fast, and stands solid under both glass and gun. The Switchback delivers superior strength-to-weight ratio, making it easy to switch from glassing to shooting in seconds. To save some dough, go ahead and use that promo code LONESTAR10 when you order the switchback at eurooptic.com, you'll save 10%. Uh, with that being said, let's bring him on right now. Joining us from Montana, somewhere in Montana, it's my pleasure to welcome longtime fishing guide and Montana Wildlife Federation's Jeff Lucas to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, we got a lot to discuss today. Um, first of all, though, I want to talk about your role with, uh, Montana with Montana Wildlife Federation. And I was telling you, uh, Jesse Dubell has been on multiple times. He's the head of the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. So I guess this is a national organization that has chapters in each state. Yeah, exactly that. Uh, so the uh, National Wildlife Federation is one of the very first hook and bullet uh, conservation groups in the country. And uh, from there, uh, about 80 years ago, they started state chapters. And so he's the head of the uh, New Mexico chapter. Mm -hmm. And um, I work for the Montana uh, affiliate or, or chapter. And we have uh, several affiliates throughout the state that are just your standard, uh, you know, hardworking uh, conservationists in the hook and bullet uh, crowd uh, throughout the state. So we've, we've got really good membership really good uh, grass tops leaders, people that have been in conservation for decades and decades. Yeah. And I've, I've told you, I've been to Montana a couple times, uh, one for black bear, one for an elk hunt. I uh, love my time there and plan on coming back uh, to go elk hunting again in the near future. But um, I've never been fishing in Montana. Uh, I did just get back from a trout fishing trip in New Mexico. Oh, nice. Um, 
Yeah. Well, it's closer to home for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little shorter drive. You have a, a, a storied history as far as angling goes. You told me off the air you've, you've been guiding off and on for, for 20 years from um, saltwater stuff to mm-hmm. you know, other parts of the country and, and now locally in Montana. Um, talk a little bit about you know, where you've been and what you've guided for. Yeah. Uh, so I decided to uh, parlay my degree from the University of Montana into a guide career. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. which uh, made a lot of sense to my family. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, my first four years, I worked up in Alaska, uh, mostly fishing for trout um, and salmon. I worked at a couple lodges up there, uh, Tick Chick Narrows Lodge and Kulik Lodge, both wonderful, wonderful establishments, um, way out in the bush, a lot of experience with brown bears, uh, float planes, uh, all the exciting stuff uh, that Alaska provides. Um, then I did several years for saltwater off the East Coast, um, out uh, in the Long Island area uh, for striped bass and false albacore tuna. It's a lot of fun, big fish, um, hard fighting fish, uh, learning the tides and currents is certainly a, a new thing for a kid that was born in the Midwest and pretty much only fished for uh, freshwater species. So yeah, that was a, a really interesting part of my career. Uh, but Missoula, Montana had always been my home base. Uh, Love the water here. Uh, learned to fish it as soon as I moved here in the 90s. And um, it was just a natural progression to, to guide here. It was a lot better to just live where you work rather than, you know, traveling for six months of the year and guiding elsewhere. So yeah. I have absolutely loved guiding here. We We have in the Missoula area. The Bitterroot River, the Clark Fork, and the Blackfoot. Those are, are kind of three main fisheries. All of them are tributaries to the to the Clark Fork. Um, that's the main river. Rolls right through downtown Missoula. You can go catch a bunch of trout right in downtown Missoula. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a it's a great place. Um, and yeah, I've been fishing here for guiding here for fifteen years. Uh, I would say that uh, the Clark Fork has, has become my favorite. But the bitterroot was always there. It just gets great hatches, big fish. Um, it's seen an uptick in pressure, but uh, over you know these last since the COVID years and a lot of people moving here and and kind of figuring out the DIY recreation uh, thing here. So people buying their own boats and uh, getting after it. But uh, so this river is big enough to you you can actually fish out of a boat. Oh yeah. Yep, you okay. can float it in a raft or a drift boat. Um, darn near from its its uh, headwaters all the way down to where it joins the Clark Fork. Uh, the only thing that keeps you from floating it is log jams. Um, uh-huh. They're uh, always, every year, a couple new log jams that are pretty squirrely to get around, a little bit dangerous. Some you can portage around. Some of them just uh, basically end all floating in that stretch of river because they get just too gnarly and big to get a boat around. So is there traditional fly fishing too, where just, you know, dudes are just walking around in waders or oh, is, yeah. it, is there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, Montana is blessed with the best, uh, most liberal stream access laws in the country. Um, we like to brag about it. You, if you can park by it, uh, if there's a bridge over it, uh, you can access it. And the, the beautiful thing is that uh, 
it is considered public land uh, up to the high water mark. So if you're walking around and as long as you're walking over scoured gravel or uh, driftwood, stuff like that, that's public land and that's yours to fish. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we stand uh, pretty firmly, well, not pretty firmly, very firmly in the legislature protecting our stream access laws um, because they are unique and it's, you know, it's not to bash states like uh, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, where the, the law is very, very different and more restrictive. Uh, we just like what we have here. Um, yeah. it's, we have uh, the same thing in Texas. Uh, yeah. You know, we have, it's called the Navigable Streams Act. It was passed, I think, it, when we became a state, I think it goes all the way back to 1837 when that regulation was enacted. Although, I don't know if you heard about this, our crooked politicians just screwed over the hunting community so you can still access it for fishing you can still bow fish uh you can still use a shotgun as long as it has um loose shot so no slugs slugs. but this goes into effect uh september 1st and they passed this law in this last session and took away bow hunting and rifle hunting in those stream beds which sometimes can be you know a mile wide if you're talking yeah. about the red river uh well that's a massive river and sometimes the, the river itself is 10 yards wide when it's not flowing but the you know the river bed itself to the high water mark is massive so yeah it was uh it was a bad deal and nobody knew about it we all the whole the hunting community all of our protectors organizations that keep tabs on those type of bills just got completely swept Oh man, and we were all caught off guard. So yeah, it was that's hard to hear, man. Um, yeah. Losing access and opportunity like that is just a tragedy wherever it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so. River bottoms are fun to hunt too, man. Uh, yeah. Around here, we have just great whitetail hunting on the river bottoms. Our stream access law um, is is a little uh, different in that uh, you you can't necessarily big game hunt uh in the river bottom areas um in in that high water mark area it's for fishing uh you can duck hunt uh um upland bird if, if they're around and you're you're on you know public land but if it's private land adjacent um big game is uh hunting is not allowed uh yeah. with uh rifle you can do shotgun with slug um and bow in certain areas uh, but you got to check your regs before you do it just to make sure you're on on the up and up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well so in your experience as a flight or i'm assuming you're fly fishing or maybe not i don't know yeah uh yeah that's a pretty safe assumption uh in montana um i do fly fish uh mostly but i grew up uh fishing for everything with, with any kind of gear. I, I go pike and, and bass fishing with gear. And I've had several clients that were, um, each of them were actually old Vietnam vets who were uh, physically impaired in some ways and and just couldn't really stand and cast a fly rod uh, anymore. And so they transitioned to spinning gear. So those are the guys that I would allow to carry spinning gear in my snobby fly fishing boat. But So what tastes better, a 20-inch rainbow or a 20-inch brown trout? Uh, rainbow every time uh, brown <laughs> trout just don't taste very good and uh-huh. quite honestly I, i've i've never really enjoyed the taste of trout all that much unless it's smoked 
Uh-huh. Uh, when you get them through the ice, they're a little bit firmer flesh and a little tastier, but um I, mean, I just have to ask the fly least. fishing guides yeah. that, you know. Yeah. We're, like one I time mean, I was going with a, a guide out of Taos, New Mexico, and I'm walking behind him and we're walking through the Red River Gorge there. And I'll say, dude, where's your stringer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's like, Are you serious? And I was like, Yeah. Uh, and and of course I was just joking with him, but yeah. No, you gotta you guys you gotta bust us a little bit on that. Yeah. Um yeah, you know, unfortunately, there's enough pressure around here that if everybody kept just one fish, which is under the bag limit, um, every time they went fishing, we wouldn't have fisheries. Mm-hmm. And so I am all for keeping fish where you can. Um, when I go camping up in the mountains, I'm all about uh, catching some brook trout or some rainbows and putting them on the fire. Um, but in our main river systems, catch and release is kind of the uh, the way to go, even though there are limit uh, bag limits and you can keep them in, in a lot of cases. Um, you know, like I said, if everyone kept one or two, every time they went out, we wouldn't have a fishery anymore. Well, our um, fishery here that we are proud of is largemouth bass, right? We have mm-hmm. Texas is known for huge, huge bass. Yep. And, uh, I'm on like a stock tank or something. I'll keep bass, yeah. but I'm not going to go to Lake fork and keep a five pound bass. Right. Well, like, and, and again, you know, largemouth aren't all that great table fare compared to like you can, I think you guys, y'all call them specs down there, crappies. Um, you know, those are great tasting. I'd, I'd catch a mess of those before I, you know, kept a largemouth. I like largemouth, but no, crappie, crappie are by far the best freshwater fish that we have down here, in my yeah. opinion. Well, let's do this, Chef. Let's knock out a quick break. We'll come back and really dial in on the issue at hand, uh, the discovery of invasive smallmouth bass in one of our nation's most famed trout streams. That segment of the show brought to you by the Mossberg MC2SC double-stacked 9mm pistol. It's my EDC. Absolutely love this thing. You can pick one up over uh, at your local dealer or head over to mossberg.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Tell me your trouble, lonely girl. Have you got now? You're confused in your own world. You just want the day to go away so you can start it all over again. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use eForms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. It's Gunmetal Gray. All right, Gunmetal Gray, the name of that one from Chuck Mead, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you, as always. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, We are still visiting with Jeff Lucas of the Montana Wildlife Federation, longtime fishing guide. Uh, We'll get back into 
what's up with the smallies in the Bitterroot in just a sec. This segment, though, brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'm a proud member, and here's why. No group of folks is more invested in protecting your rights as a sportsman or woman than SCI. They do it both domestically and internationally. Uh, Our friend Ben Cassidy heads up the Government Affairs Department, and he's based right there on Capitol Hill. So they've got their finger on the pulse of all of the anti-hunting, anti-trapping, anti-fishing, anti-Second Amendment legislation that is trying to be forced down our throats without fail, (laughs) day in and day out. Um, So for more info, to join our ranks, head over to safariclub.org. We'd love to have you. Uh, All right, let's pick it back up uh, with our new friend, Jeff Lucas. Well, so I wanted to visit with you because I was reading this article. It was written by uh, Charlie Boers in Field and Stream. And it was, uh, I guess the situation was a smallmouth bass was caught in the Bitterroot River. And I guess, first of all, before we talk about why that's significant, what what fish are native to the Bitterroot? Bitterroot? Because brown trout are not. They're like a European species. I doubt rainbows are. Correct. Um, but I read you had cutthroat. That's possibly yes. okay. Yeah. So our our native species are uh, in this area are uh, West Slope cutthroat trout and bull trout. Um, though that stands for all the fisheries in in Western Montana. Um, now the bull trout is a threatened species, um, and they are suffering from a massive loss of habitat whether it's development, mining, or uh, timber harvest, all of those things kind of over decades degraded their habitat. And so their population is very, very reduced. In the Bitterroot, they only really exist in some tributaries and the headwaters. And then once you get to the main stem from about the town of Darby uh, downstream all the way to its confluence with the Clark Fork, they don't really exist except for Occasionally, where a tributary dumps into the river, they require really cold, clear, and clean water. The three seeds are essential for bull trout. How big can bull trout get? Oh, big, big. Um, They can get up to 35, 36 inches, Uh um, 15, 16 pounds, and they are incredibly voracious. They're they're like a pike in attitude. Um, the, The best way to see a bull trout oftentimes is to hook about a 12 or 14 inch uh, trout and the bull trout will just come and smack it. They'll just oh. bone it and eat it. And you're sitting there with a five weight rod and, you know, four or six pound test, uh-huh. uh, you know, and you got this 30 something inch bull trout latched onto you like a freight train. Uh, oh, wow. It's really exciting. And uh, the, the Blackfoot river is, is where you see that pretty frequently. It's a pretty good stronghold of bull trout. Um, and they are, so they are, I got to say, they're illegal to target in this area because they are threatened species. And if you wanted to, they're they're pretty easy to catch. They're very aggressive, um, hyper aggressive almost. Uh-huh. Um, I've seen a buddy of mine hook one. He was throwing a big streamer. Uh, we fish in the springtime for big browns on the Blackfoot with big streamers. And occasionally you hook a bull trout. So he hooked, he hooked about a 34-inch bull trout, and as it fought, this thing was coming out of its mouth. It looked like a white tube sock, and as we got it closer to the boat, we, re- we realized it was uh, that bull trout's last meal, 
which once it got into the net, it finally puked it up. And what was not digested yet was 18 inches long. So this 34 inch bull trout ate about an 18 or 19 inch rainbow. Um, and then was hungry enough to eat a big streamer, you know, while that thing was still in its gullet. Wow. So it's a testament to how, uh, how voracious and aggressive they are. They're, they're super cool fish. Uh Um, Okay. And then our, our other native species is the West Slope cutthroat. And those can be found throughout, uh, all the main rivers in this area. What about largemouth bass? Um, so we, largemouth bass exist in the lower Bitterroot due to a couple of uh, marshy wildlife refuges that are on the lower 15, 20 miles of the river. Um, Those marshes are, A, excellent duck hunting, Uh but B, um, they're fairly warm and and they are decent habitat for largemouth. So in the spring, when everything floods, those marshes wash into the Bitterroot River. And uh, and so... Largemouth have existed in the Bitterroot for at least 20 years, I want to say, maybe okay. longer. But they stick to the warm uh, back channels and little sloughs. Anywhere there isn't current going through and it's a little bit uh, muddier, weedier, um, warmer, Yeah, you'll you'll find some largemouth. And I've actually caught them up to four to five pounds out of some of the... Um, little back channels i know five pounds is nothing to, to uh get excited no, five about pound in texas bass is respectable still it's respectable yeah. um but uh yeah i know you guys grow them a lot bigger down there but, but if you uh, would, if i was going to go bass fishing here and the biggest fish i caught on the day was five pounds i would say that was still a good day like that's yeah that's a good fish yeah it's a solid fish yeah um, but they've always existed or not always a, a couple decades they've existed in in uh parts of the Bitterroot. um but uh yeah it's it's uh it's another species of bass that that we're worried about yeah yeah which was what this article was about and i guess it was on um i think it was i read july 5th mm-hmm. there was a smallmouth caught and netted by a trout fisherman in the bitter root and smallies i was surprised to find out they're not native to montana at all no they're not um and they were introduced in several areas um by the state uh our fish wildlife and parks um trying to expand um you know fishing opportunities was the largemouth introduced or was it is it native uh i believe uh no they're they're non-native as well and okay. i think that was more of a case of bucket biology in in those um wildlife refuges and marshes that i was talking yeah. about someone you know thought hey this is swampy as all get out i bet a bass would do pretty well in yeah. here and they were right yeah <laughs> unfortunately so, okay so but they've been there for a while so the smallmouth mm-hmm. though not native to montana either so Correct. which is why it's significant that uh one was caught in i guess one of the nation's most storied trout fisheries yeah um and it's it's beyond alarming and uh you know the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, which is our state uh, agency, um, they did an emergency um, rulemaking on catch and kill for smallmouth in the Bitterroot mm-hmm. uh, because they saw how quickly this could escalate. And, um, you know, the, the catch and kill regulation is 
you know, it's good for removing fish out of the, the system. But once an invasive species really takes hold, if people are targeting them um, and catching them, that means that population is pretty much there. And it's going to be really tough to eradicate them just through the public removing them. The catch and kill policy is more about monitoring. Um, so make it mandatory that if somebody catches one, they kill it and they bring it in and, and say where they uh, where they caught it. And then they can also examine the otolith bone, um, which is it's a fascinating thing to study. Basically, the otolith bone um, is like rings on a tree. And it's a recording of everywhere that fish has spent time. So mm -hmm. the molecular molecular makeup of the water that they're in is um, sort of recorded on that bone. And they can analyze if it's spent a lot of time in one area or another um, and, and kind of get a, an idea of its uh, its history, where it's spent time over the years. I might just take a picture and then say, here's the fish I caught. Uh, it's going on the grill now because small smallies are pretty good. <laughs> they are tasty. Um, yeah, I mentioned that largemouth is not my favorite uh, mm -hmm. for table fare, but smallmouth actually tastes really good. Oh yeah, uh, they're they're not as good as a crappie or a perch or a walleye, but they're darn close. Yeah. I like eating them. I've done a couple, uh, a handful of boundary water trips mm -hmm. in um, Minnesota and then Ontario. And you just catch so many smallies till your arm, you know, about to fall off. Hoping once in a while you'll you'll get a walleye, yeah, um, but uh, or a pike. But you know, I mean, you're you're targeting the smallies until you get bored with it. But yeah. as far as eating, oh my gosh, yeah, I love them. Well, and you always know uh, a good day of smallmouth fishing is when your thumb is uh, when the skin is really raw and chewed up from lipping yeah. a bunch of them. That's oh, yeah. that's the sign of a good day of smallie fishing. Mm -hmm. But so in your what? How long have you lived in Missoula? Twenty-five years. Have you ever heard of anybody catching a smallmouth in that river? Never, okay. never. Um, and that's the alarming thing. Uh, so, smallmouth do exist way down the Clark Fork um, after its confluence with the Flathead River, and the Flathead River is the uh, river that drains all of like Glacier National Park and the Bob Marshall Wilderness Area. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a, you know, it's a huge system and that's where smallmouth were introduced about a hundred miles downstream of the confluence of the Bitterroot downstream. And, uh, yeah. Downstream. It's a warmer fishery down there. Uh, it typically, you know, it gets into the upper sixties and seventies in the summer, which is prime temperature regime for smallmouth bass. And, uh, those bass have, you know, been known to swim up the first maybe 10 to 15 miles of the Clark Fork um, above where the Flathead and the Clark Fork uh, join. Um, below that that confluence, it's really good smallmouth fishing. I go down there quite a bit. Uh, there's huge pike. I've caught pike up to 20 pounds out of there. Um, and you can catch you know, no shortage of two to four pound smallmouth with some occasional five to almost six pounders down there. They're, they're big, but that first 10 to 15 miles of the Clark Fork, um, they're in there and you can catch them. Uh, but the Clark Fork river is a little bit cooler, uh, than, uh, 
then after the confluence of the Flathead and the Clark Fork, it's warmer down there. And that cool area is just a little bit too cold for the smallmouth to really press upstream further aggressively. Um, we believe that the smallmouth that was caught at the Bitterroot River probably came up from there and skipped everything in between because it's just a little cooler than their temperature temperature regime likes. Mm -hmm. And once they hit the Bitterroot, uh, that lower 10, 15 miles of the Bitterroot gets warm. Uh, it's shallower. Uh, the, the flows in the summertime are kind of low and it's a wide river. So it's it gets affected by, you know, the heat of the summer, the dog days. Mm -hmm. And it's not uncommon to see it reach 75, 76 degrees, which really does make the trout suffer. But it also is prime, you know, habitat for for smallmouth. If if it was always that temperature, there's enough structure, deep holes, uh, forage for smallmouth to really thrive in there. So, um, not only did they find that one smallmouth, but another person found a second one uh, a few weeks later. So caught another it's, one. Yep, yep. There's a second one reported. So how so how many miles upstream did they travel? Uh, probably about 80 to 90. Wow. Yeah. And if there's two, there's more. That's the guess. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's the hard part, you know, with invasive species, uh, non-natives, particularly in, in lakes and rivers is, you know, gosh, hindsight's always 20, 20. Um, mm -hmm. once, once they're there, it's really tough to get them out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. But can they survive there in the winter? In that not where the... not easily, but uh, there are deep enough pools where they could uh, overwinter and and you know develop into a, a long term kind of presence. It's and it'd what be is, tough, but they could do it. What is the big concern? Like, why is every why is this article written? Why is why are we talking today? Why why is everyone freaking out about it? Yeah, I mean, the big concern is that um, you know they are a, a voraciously feeding fish. And they've found habitat that's suitable for them. And it uh, happens to also be a world-class trout fishery. And so um, we're, we're worried that uh, both, you know, rainbows and browns, which were introduced, you know, over a hundred years ago to the state, uh, but are part of our fishery, um, uh -huh. part of our fly fishing world. Um, but most importantly, the native species, the cutthroats and, uh, and the remaining bull trout, um, you know, they could be decimated by the presence of smallmouth. Um, I've caught a lot of northern pike, which are also introduced, and um, we tried to eradicate, but they are just here. Uh, I've caught a lot of northern pike in the lower bitterroot and the Clark Fork, and just about every one of their bellies has, you know, cutthroat trout in and rainbow trout in them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they feed around the clock and around the year. So, you know, just a few smallmouth bass could really, really decimate that uh population of trout in the lower bitterroot you know browns and rainbows are invasive but they're part of they're ingrained in your fishing culture there they've been there like you mm -hmm. said for a century because when i first read it i was like well so what it's one invasive versus another you know who cares uh i mean that wasn't really my final thought but i was like eh, it seems like is it really that big of a deal but then when i was reading about these the cutthroat and then you just informed us about uh, the bull trout. And it's like, well, okay, now 
now I have a uh, skin in the game, right? Because I'm a conservationist. And even though it's Montana, I'd love to come fish there someday. You should. Um, and, uh, and then you're like, okay, well, this is a serious problem. But I think more so than, well, it all comes down to dollars, right? At the end of the day, mm-hmm. that's what makes conservation work is dollars. And what's driving these fisheries is trout fishing. I mean, how many fly shops there are there in Missoula? How many, how many guides yeah. are there? How many uh, Airbnbs and hotels get booked up by fly fishermen that are, that are flocking to this historic river to, you know, enjoy what you have there? Yeah. And, and I mean, all you have to do is go to our airport, which I'll tell you is not all that big, but darn near every plane that lands there from about March until October, there's at least a couple people getting off with fly rod tubes, if not a dozen or more. Mm-hmm. And that's every day. Um, and then you drive up and down our rivers and you see license plates from all over the country. Um, our economy thrives on our outdoor recreation. Uh, it's been proven to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest driver of our economy. Billions of dollars are spent a year in Montana on outdoor recreation and fly fishing is a big part of that. Um, you know, our native species, um, we have a lot of regulations to help them out and uh, expand their uh, territory, you know, get them back into their uh, territory that they had already uh, always existed in. Um, but, you know, rainbows and browns are part of that. They've established uh, themselves. But you'll find a lot of people, they, they just love cutthroats. They're fun to catch. They're beautiful. Uh, they, they happen to eat a fly very readily. They're kind of a guide's best friend. Some days on your toughest day, you just need one or two dumb cutthroats to come and take a whack at the bug. Um, so they are, you know, a species that we're very concerned with the conservation of. And anytime you get um, predatory invasive species in their habitat, it's a big concern. Mm-hmm. I obviously would prefer that the smallies move on, move along, move back downstream yeah. <laughs> for the sake of y'all's fishery. You know, I think it's a good thing that Montana, uh, is it fishing game? What is y'all's agency? Fish, wildlife, and parks. Well, that they were proactive and saying, hey, you know, let's, let's try to get ahead of this yeah. uh, by, with this catch and kill policy. Let's do the research, figure out where they're coming from, at least try to understand what's going on here. Uh, but yeah, it is always concerning when, when an invasive comes in and, and changes the game. So. Um, I appreciate the time. Thanks for for jumping on and, and just educating us a little bit, sharing what's going on. I found the article fascinating. Uh, like to we like to keep tabs on these kind of things, and um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, you know, there's probably more than two, but hopefully, it's they haven't you know established a foothold there. Yeah, I mean, I mean the the regulations are in place to uh, nip this in the bud as early as possible. So I I have hope that. Um, we'll be able to get control of this situation and, and hopefully not see them establish a foothold there. But, mm-hmm. you know, education is important. Um, I appreciate you reaching out uh, for this interview because um, the more people know about it, uh, the more they'll be aware about it. And, you know, if they see a smallmouth, they'll report it and they'll get active on the, the conservation end of trying to fix this. So I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. And you're more than welcome to come up to Missoula and hop in one of my boats and, uh, Fog the water with me for a day or awesome. two if you want. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to come do on it. up. I think, and you know, one other thing to say: hindsight's twenty twenty, 
but our our country is just littered with examples of oh. hey let's let's introduce this to control this or you know in the like, yeah. i was in uh i was access deer hunting on maui uh last april and i look over and i'm like is that a was that a mongoose i just saw he's like yeah we, inter- <laughs> we introduced the mongoose to help control the rat population which was invasive but the problem is the mongoose hunts at day and then rats are out at night so they never see each other <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean hindsight is always twenty twenty, and and man like it the the world of wildlife introduction is just fraught with examples of mm-hmm. unintended consequences 100%. you know introduce this species to take care of that species and both wind up being a train wreck so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's it's tough man and, yeah, and once those mistakes. species yeah exactly and once those species get a foothold and they're pretty much there yeah yeah well, right on man i appreciate your time jeff i uh, hope you have a great fall and uh, i don't know did you draw an elk tag this year or do you can you just i think you just get well, one well, yeah we that's another beautiful thing about montana mm. everybody gets a bull tag um so yeah i uh i didn't draw any of the stuff that i uh applied for i i got a really good permit a couple of years ago in the missouri breaks mm. and uh with us that that spends all of your kind of points in the the system for yeah. getting uh permits so it'll be a year or two before i get what i want uh permit wise but yeah i mean I we got just a ton of public land to walk all over and, and a lot of a lot of animals so yeah looking forward well, to the i look forward to uh, my next time up in your part of the world so appreciate it and uh like i said have a great fall you as well good luck out there so there you have it montana wildlife federation's jeff lucas a longtime fishing guide smallies in the bitter root bad news uh thanks to field and stream for connecting Jeff and I uh, for the great article. Uh, that segment of the show brought to you by Stealth Cam and the Deceptor wireless trail camera, cell cam, if you will. Uh, this thing has the best nighttime photos that I've ever seen. Of course, it's not, uh, it's no slouch on the daytime imaging either. You can pick one up for like 130 bucks with data plans as cheap as $5 a month. You can find it at stealthcam.com. Up next, we're going to dig in on a little shark research with Dr. Kesley Banks on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Every night and day, oh, I'm looking for the means to pay for all the wrongs that I've done. I'm Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. Or a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW? Then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guides scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. All right, this is Phil Robertson, better known as the Duck Commander. This is the Lone Star Outdoor Show. The Grandad's dinner with a zip code. They bought $10 lunch. They don't even get them wet, though. 
10 pound test the name of that one from rodney parker bringing us back on sci's lone star outdoor show presented by mossberg firearms cable smith here with you thank you so much for being a part of today's presentation uh we're all set to talk some shark research with dr kesley banks of the oh it's a mouthful here the heart research institute for gulf of mexico studies that's part of the texas a&m corpus christi system uh, first, though, this segment is brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Big and J Whitetail Attractants. And with that being said, let's bring her on right now, Dr. Kesley Banks. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. So tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, where you're from, and then uh, you can talk a little bit about your educational back- background, uh, and then we'll transition into uh, what you do currently. Okay. So I'm originally from the state of Tennessee where I got my undergrad at the University of Tennessee at Martin, which is like a small satellite school of UTK. Um, I actually studied millipedes, believe it or not, for my undergrad career. Um, From there, I moved on to uh, Troy University in Alabama, where I studied aquatic toxicology and looked at um, freshwater snails and mussels. And I looked at US EPA water quality criteria. And then I moved to Texas to start my PhD in 2015, graduated in 2019 with a, a doctorate in marine biology, and have been in Texas ever since. So in your time working with freshwater mollusks, did you ever uh, work with zebra mussels? Because I've been doing this what, almost 15 years, and they've been at the forefront of the uh, aquatic invasive species list for as long as I can remember. Yeah. So I actually didn't use zebra mussels as my study animal. Uh-huh. I actually looked at um, federally threatened and endangered species rather than invasive. Um, but we did have a zebra mussel problem in Alabama as well. Okay. They are So starting. what freshwater snails am I eating when I eat escargot? Or is that are those from another country? Or those are from different? another country. <laughs> yeah. Those would be French snails. They're very fancy compared to the ones I was looking at. Yeah, no, mine are These like are redneck snails that we're looking at. Yeah, and they're really tiny. If you're eating those, you're eating probably a <laughs> couple thousand to make a meal. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so that's your background. So yeah. tell us what you do currently at the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies. So I am a research scientist here. I primarily study highly migratory species, so billfish, sharks, and tunas. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I do a lot of fish movement studies, so I also look at a few inshore species like flounder, trout, red drum, black drum, and then my dissertation actually covered red snipper as well. So kind of a, a wide species breadth. And do you like to fish yourself? Of course. Yes, I'm a big, avid fisherman, mostly offshore. I, I suck in the bay. Uh-huh. I am one of those bay bait fishermen. <laughs> but, oh, well, you're talking that to someone that will, will drown croaker all day. I don't care. Good. We're on the same page. Yeah, bait's not a taboo offshore. No. Um, in fact, the bigger the bait, the bigger the fish. So That's right. Well, and for a lot of people, when I fish for largemouth bass, which being from North Texas, you know, that's what's king here. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I head to the coast and I get to go a couple times a year, I want to catch fish. I don't, I'm not a snob. I don't need to throw soft plastics at trout to make myself feel good. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't tell my, my new boss that, uh, soft plastics are for snobs. Cause that's what he throws for <laughs> trout. 
Oh, I've done it. We, we, we went to uh, Baffin Bay one time with a guide, and it was artificial only. Yep. And, uh, yep. I caught diddly squat. I caught one really nice flounder, but I didn't catch any trout. But, yeah, I'm not very good with soft plastics. Now, a yeah. spoon, I could throw a spoon. Uh-huh. But I, I don't tend to do very well with soft plastics. So that's good. So you like to fish yourself because I yes. think – and I think it's becoming more and more prevalent that we have people that get involved in um, wildlife management or research that don't hunt or fish, and they're coming at it from more of an animal rights, you know, activism background or belief system. Uh, so it's always encouraging when you're talking to somebody who's like, "Oh yeah, no, I, I like to, I like to kill and eat animals too, but I also like to study them and conserve them." And you know, it, we understand that it goes full circle. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so as far as uh, shark research goes, one of our mutual friends, Taylor Garcia, sent uh, or connected us and said that you were doing some interesting research. Uh, and this was on the heels of a recent interview I did with Mike Leonard of the American Sport Fishing Association. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that conversation, uh, I guess, in a second. But um, you guys are using satellite tracking mm-hmm. to conduct this research um and is is this through the heart research institute or through the sport fish center which might be a whole nother entity in and of itself yeah so the sport fish center is like the the word center actually means something it's not like it is designated by the state so we are a scientific center designated by the state of texas okay so um we are a center within the heart research institute so the center is essentially like our lab our mm-hmm. office space and and what we research um but yeah we are part of it gets really long when we do our title because we're the center for sport fish science and conservation at the heart research institute for gulf of mexico studies mm-hmm. at <laughs> it gets really long if you give yeah. like our full titles so yeah it, they're one in the same essentially if we're doing research in the sport fish center heart research is also doing that okay And so you guys are tagging sharks. Specifically, at least in the last couple of years since I got here, we've been focusing on short fin makos. Um, That is something that I personally study. Um, For short fin makos, we were kind of on the forefront of that research and and finding out where they're going. So shark science, I should back up and say, is very uh, much in its infancy. We, for a lot of species, don't even know where they are going. Mm-hmm. where they breed, where they pup. Um, we're just learning for some species what they're eating. And so um, this is all really important research in conserving those species and also keeping that population sustainable for fishermen who do want to harvest or who do want their kids to catch a shark in the future. Um, I study short fin makos, which recently became a prohibited species um, because in the North Atlantic, it is overfished and undergoing overfishing to the point that there's only a 50% chance that that, that this species will recover by the year 2070 if oh, wow. absolutely no other short fin mako is caught. And oh. obviously that's not possible. It's a bycatch species, right? So it's going to have, you know, some kind of interaction with a long line or an accidental, you know, you can't control what bites your hook. It's going to bite some yeah. fish its hook. Mm-hmm. So. So, okay, shortfin mako, I'm not familiar with this species. I mean, I know what a mako shark is, and people go to California and shoot them with a bow, and some of them are, are giant, you know. I mean, they like bow fishing these things off of a offshore boat. 
Um, what's what's the difference between that species and, and this one that you're studying? So there's not a lot other than they're in different geographic locations. Um, one big thing is mako sharks actually incorporate two species. They're short fin mako and then long fin mako. Both are prohibited. Long fin's been prohibited for a very long time and short fin just recently became prohibited, but only in the North Atlantic because mm -hmm. that is where ours, ours don't truly interact with those in the Pacific. So you could still go catch short fin makos in the Pacific. You cannot in the Atlantic anymore. Okay. Um, so that's the species that we're talking about specifically. How do you catch these things and tag them? Right. Really big baits. <laughs> okay. Um, we do actually, you, are, fish... do you actively participate in the catching? Um, yeah, we actually fish a little differently. So if we are fishing scientifically, we are permitted to fish more commercial gear. So we fish hand lines. So instead of using, well, you're a bass fisherman. So instead of using like 10, 15 pound test, you know, at your heaviest, I'm using 1500 pound test. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's attached to a buoy. So just like in Jaws, when they hit the hook, they take that buoy under and run. And then we chase the buoy down with a boat and then you fight by hand to bring the shark close to the boat. Um, we can land them faster that way. They're landed green that way. So they're still, you know, healthy. We are able to go through the tagging process and release them with pretty good success. And what kind of technology is associated with the, the tags and how are you tracking? their? Movements? So we use, good question. We use satellite tags, which I happen to have one here. And okay. so these allow us to track the shark anywhere in the world. So this is a wet dry sensor. So when these break the surface of the water with the fin, it sends a location to the satellite and we're able to see that location along with the date timestamp. And so that allows us to see where that fish is going. We have other technology that would require like a listening station um, or, you know, for the shark to be recaptured. And so this is a little better technology. It's also a little more expensive. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, so back to that conversation with Mike and I don't know, maybe it, this obviously doesn't relate as much to the short fin mako since they're protected species, but you know, I think we've heard about, you know, shark numbers declining globally for as long as I can remember, but it wasn't really something that we knew a lot about and that a lot, I don't think a lot of people really cared to be honest with you. They saw jaws and they're like, yeah, screw sharks. Fine. Whatever. Yeah. Jaws um, was detrimental to the shark population. Right. But we do have this problem now, uh, certainly in the Gulf, where recreational anglers are losing a lot of their catch to, you know, the tax man, the shark. Um, I don't know which species. I, Mike said uh, bull shark was very uh, instrumental in that, in those confrontations. Uh, but also when you're trying to release fish too, you know, we don't, we don't keep everything like tarpon fishing, for example. Nobody's eating a tarpon. So it's all catch and release, but these sharks, uh, either their numbers have rebounded or they've learned to target fishing vessels. Um, and it's causing, you know, a little bit of an issue. Uh, I don't know if that's something that you guys are, you know, keyed in on or focused on, but, um, how are shark numbers better than they were 20 years ago? So in, in the Gulf of Mexico anyway? Yeah. So the Gulf actually and in most of the United States, we have healthy shark populations. Globally, sharks are still in trouble, but the United States has done very good about managing our shark populations. Yes, there is a shark depredation issue. We're not even going to skirt that issue. That is a problem. But that is kind of a mix of what you said. 
um, with sharp numbers going up, which is good, and then a learned behavior. So there is research out there suggesting that sharks are learning the sound of certain motors so they know, hey, I'm coming to, you know, that sound. Sharks actually hang around fish cleaning stations, right? That's a free meal. That's a learned yeah. behavior. Fish cleaning stations are not natural. Don't and feed so the bears. Don't feed the bears. Exactly. Yeah. Don't feed the sharks. Don't feed the dolphins. <laughs> All of it. I will say we are starting a project in the spring looking at some changes to terminal tackle that might help decrease some of those negative interactions. Well, that's certainly going to raise some skeptical eyebrows, mine included, uh, when you're talking about tackle that can thwart sharks, but not your target species. Uh, but I do want to hear more about that, as well as hone in on the research that y'all have conducted and what you've learned throughout that process uh, relating to sharks and their behavior. So we'll get into all of that after the break. That segment brought to you by the NUMA Renegade hoodie. It's lightweight, it's breathable, it's got a face mask and a hood designed specifically for those times when you're putting in hours and hours behind the glass uh, in an early season hunt. Or uh, it's also perfect for spring turkey because it's going to keep you cool during the heat of the day, but uh, also keep you warm in the evenings. You can find the Renegade hoodie at numaoutdoors.com. That's P-N-U-M-A outdoors.com. And you'll save 20% off your entire NUMA order when you use my promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out. So uh, save you some cash there with that promo code. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Kesley Banks on the Lone Star Outdoors show. To do my sentence, I broke out of the Nashville jail. Let me tell you about the Armorsight 640 contractor. It is the industry-leading thermal technology in a very user-friendly rifle scope. A 640 Armor Core 12 Micro made in the USA Thermal Core. It's got a four-hour onboard recording, four-hour runtime on a full charge, USB and Wi-Fi streaming, uh, eight user-selectable reticles and six color palettes, and the most user-friendly interface out there because you're operating these things in the dark. So uh, that's very important. You can find the contractor, the 640, or its little brother, the 320, right there at Armasite.com. In the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Was it escape or was it hunger? Kansas ain't no place to be a man. You used to say you'd settle down. That kind girl from school in town. She was gone before you got back home. Tell the riddle, if you're still alive. That's brand new stuff there from Zach Bryan off his new uh, self-titled record. Came out this past week, El Dorado. Love that tune. Although, uh, I think he's pronouncing that wrong. The, looks like the boys from Oklahoma roll their joints all wrong and don't know how to pronounce El Dorado like we say it in Texas. Uh, anyway, great record. Y'all check that out. This segment of the show is proudly brought to you by 
Black Rifle Coffee, unapologetically patriotic. Uh, Black Rifle, of course, veteran-owned and operated. In addition to all of their great coffee roasts, uh, you can find all of that pro 2A, pro-America swag, T-shirts, caps, hoodies, all of it right there at blackriflecoffee.com. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get back into our shark conversation with Dr. Kesley Banks of the Texas A&M Corpus Christi Education System. So, Dr. Banks, when we left off, you know, we were starting to scratch the surface on potential new technologies in fishing tackle that might prevent the tax man from uh, taking our catch, as sharks so often do. So, we were just funded, and like I said, it's going to start in the spring, to look at different types of weights that are made of, like, different materials. Um, And so, uh, you can look at, like, Shark Bands has one that we're going to test to see if that helps deter sharks from taking, you know, your fish off your line when you're coming up. Um, and then there's also another type of prototype that's out that has, um, it does like an electrical pulse or a magnetic pulse that's supposed to deter sharks in the area from coming anywhere near where this, this machine is in the water. So mm. results to come, but we are looking into that issue. We do know that it is a problem. So Mike mentioned he didn't really have a lot more information on that but he did mention like the pulsating thing that was you know he'd heard about that but my question was well how does you know how does that deter sharks but not deter the fish that you actually want to catch so that's what we're actually going to test with that so sharks have very sensitive noses and so that electrical pull should push them away um but we are going to look at catch rates to make sure that's not decreasing catch rates Mm -hmm. of fish as well um my guess is it it might have some impact, but I don't think it'll be that significant because fish and sharks kind of interact with their environment a little differently. Mm. So. One other thing that I asked Mike Leonard of the uh, ASA about, I think it's mostly Asian markets that really have a thirst for shark fin soup. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, and, you, and people have seen these images of just hundreds of shark fins, you know, laid out on the deck of a boat. Well, okay, all those sharks are dead. It's not a good look, but um, has the, I guess, the uh, the decrease in the demand for shark fin soup possibly led to an influx of, of shark numbers? Um, the, well, if there's a true decrease, then yes, there could be an influx mm-hmm. in shark numbers. But most of that's probably from just the extra protection that we're now adding to sharks. Um, and I'm, I'm going to reiterate that we want sharks in our environment not the negative interaction with your catch, but you do right. want sharks in your environment. If you like seafood, if you like fishing. Um, and so yes, having more sharks does lead to more interaction potential, right? More of something just leads to more interactions. Um, but there are some things that we can help hopefully do in the future with some new technology to negate some of those negative interactions. But uh-huh. Sharks aren't quite to where they need to be population-wise to sustain, especially elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Said for the most part, the United States has done pretty good about managing their their shark populations. Okay. Um, what has been the most interesting thing that the research uh has has shown you? For me, it is actually seeing where some of these sharks go. So here in the Gulf of Mexico, especially off Texas. We always thought we had a seasonal shortfin mako population, and that's not actually the case. Our females stay in the Gulf of Mexico all year long. So do some of our smaller males. 
our breeding males tend to leave the Gulf. So we have sharks that go to the Caribbean every summer and sharks that go up to New England every summer. And so it's really interesting to just see how those subpopulations are interacting. Um, Cause huh. if I had, when I started and I talked to fishermen, shortfin makos were only here in the winter and that's not the case. So that's kind of cool. Interesting. Uh, what, like generally speaking, when it comes to sharks, does the male get bigger or female? Female. Okay. We females have to give birth, so they have they need more resources. They get bigger. Okay, that's fascinating. I wouldn't have thought those 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 sharks would end up in New England. But I was looking at the the graph um, from the the link that you sent me, and it mm -hmm. was like you know all the way from uh, our coast here in Texas to like I don't the middle of the Caribbean mm -hmm. and back. Um, they did that. So what's really cool is those two males that left left for two years, almost to the exact day. Like, so when they're ready to leave, they just leave. And they did it two years back to back. And both males actually did it within a couple of days of each other. So the one that went to New England left like a day before the one that went to the Caribbean. Like it was something triggered it and they, they hit the road running. Do we have any idea of where these sharks um, reproduce? Like where they're no, no idea if it's inshore no. or offshore or no. So it's hypothesized that they are um, mating offshore. We've got a couple of females that have some pretty hefty bite marks, um, which is usually indicative of mating behavior for sharks. So we think there is a breeding population that's happening in the Gulf of Mexico, but we haven't been able to obviously see that. That would be a rare event for us to be able to capture on film. Mm-hmm. What, what about as far as other species, um, what, uh, obviously you're just tagging the Makos, but do you interact with the, the other shark species and do you, is there any other research going on with them? Yeah, of course. So we actually have a very large tagging program with recreational shark fishermen, um, pretty much anywhere on the Texas coast and some in Florida. We have recreational shark fishermen that actually tag for us. And so to date, they have tagged 10, over 10,500 sharks that we are able to look at seasonal uh, species compositions. We get recapture reports so we can see like how the difference in growth. Um, we're able to tell when we see females, when we see males, size distributions, all sorts of information that we otherwise wouldn't have without these guys. And so they do a, a wide variety of species, um, including sandbars, which is actually one of the species that's more likely to have the depredation events, at least here in the offshore in the Texas area. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, I've spent a little bit of time with some shark fishermen, uh, but generally speaking, they stay up all night long. And I'm just like, I just, I'm, I'm either too old or just don't have it in me to yeah, they go hard. <laughs> yeah, some of these guys go like three or four days, and I, yeah, I can't do it either. I'm yeah. I'm gonna go sleep in the truck. Wake me up when there's a shark. Yeah, but they have. I mean, you see huge hammerheads, huge bull sharks, um, makos, tiger sharks, uh, all caught off the coast, and and these guys will get them up in the shallows, get their picture. Some of those guys, I'm sure, are tagging them, yep. uh, and then trying to release them. But I did hear, and I don't know if this is true, that the hammerheads are like very hard to resuscitate. Yes. So I don't know why. Hammerheads are very sensitive. They uh -huh. fight to the death and they build up lactic acid. So just like you work out, you get sore muscles. They fight till they get so much of that in their bloodstream that they're, it's unable, they're unable to resuscitate. Huh. 
what's been the the species that you didn't or that maybe we didn't think we had very many here then that just pop up randomly lemon sharks lemon sharks yeah so it's weird too because north texas seems to see more lemon sharks than south texas it's a very rare event that like down pins we see a lemon shark but up near matagorda i tend to get some lemon shark uh, reports interesting and then of these of like with bull shark with uh tiger shark um hammerhead are those populations doing well yeah those are the ones that we most most people like oh i know what that is you know like yeah so most of the iconic species are doing really well right so you're a hunter you understand that you know with management you got to get people on board to Mm -hmm. conserve species that may be in you know declining and so you you start with the iconic nobody wants to look at the freshwater the, the federally threatened snail that I was studying like and you wouldn't right. even know it existed but if you saw this big charismatic animal yes I'm gonna save that I'm gonna get behind that and so yeah a lot of those were some of the the first species to to really be protected not to say that people don't harvest them because they do and we sample them so we do a variety of research um, unfortunately right now to age a shark you still have to kill it and so we actually partner or work with a group of anglers that if their clients are going to go ahead and kill that shark, we go ahead and, and get additional samples we otherwise wouldn't have. So oh, fascinating. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, I think that's most of the information that I wanted to get from you to see if there was anything else that I wanted to ask you. Um, clearly, I will tell you, I talked to Mike about shark depredation. Oh, you did? Uh, yeah, a couple weeks ago on, on his ASA podcast. So it's a hot topic right now. Yeah. Well, and they're just, you know, wh- where's the happy median, right? Where sharks win and anglers win because at the end of the day, anglers are pumping a lot of money into, yeah. you know, the things that fund conservation, just like hunters. Um, yeah. So they we have to keep them satisfied, right? But yep. not at the detriment of wiping out our shark species. So where is that balance? I don't know. That's what we're always looking for, you know? So. Yeah. And I think the tackle industry and the fishing industry is, is making some headway on that. I really do think some of this gear that we're getting ready to test will be, especially for the recreational side, be really beneficial. We're also going to test it on um, like a headboat and in the commercial industry and I'm a little more skeptical there just because of the amount of lines that go in the water, but we're going to see, you know, maybe there's a combination of something we can, we can do. Uh Well, you guys keep pushing the envelope on that front. Uh, It's been great visiting with you. Thanks for educating us a little bit here today. And if you want to give the, uh, the website where that link that you sent me is, I'm sure people would find that fascinating to, to see how these sharks are moving in, in our uh, waters off the Texas coast. Yeah, so you can actually find out any of our research inshore, offshore at sportfishresearch.org. So we have a, a variety of research going on. One other question. Do you guys partner with any other similar uh, research centers across the country? Share we data? Have, yeah, we have lots of partners. Um, pretty well, right now we have a Amberjack count, the great Amberjack uh, count going on, and that's got over 20 co-PIs. So we, we're always partnering with people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Science is very collaborative. It's not done in a vacuum and it's not done by one individual. So. Yeah. Amberjack, that's an interesting one too, as 
Yeah. So I think for as long as I can remember, the limit's been one, and then there's been years where the season's been so strict that it's not worth going, maybe even closed. Um, is that y'all study amberjack too? We do. We study everything. So I'm gonna let you go, but now we're gonna, we're gonna <laughs> now talk we're gonna talk about amberjack. Yeah. Um, yeah. So amberjack is interesting because it's actually been overfished and undergoing overfishing for a long time, and the problem is. Um, all of the management uh, recommendations that have gone in to practice actually haven't truly helped. And so we are currently, this is a follow-up study to the great red uh, snapper count. And so we're now trying to get an abundance estimate for amberjack from South Atlantic all the way through the Gulf of Mexico. And so that project is ongoing. Actually, a group of our researchers are offshore for two and a half weeks um, uh, doing the, that sampling process. They just had to outrun, um, what is it? Harold, yeah. Tropical Storm Harold. They just had to outrun Harold. So, wow. yeah. Um, yeah, that Amberjack one is, is interesting. Is it struggling across its range or just here in the Gulf? Because I Red Snapper, know. you know, some people are like, oh, and we've talked about Red Snapper a ton over the years on this show, just because of, I, what I consider the feds overreach of yes. Well, we know these fish don't migrate, right? So this is their reef. They're hanging out at, maybe they go to the next one. They're not going to the Florida coast, the ones that are off the coast of Texas. I don't know if Amberjack migrate or not. Um, Amberjack actually migrate a little more than snapper. We are tagging um, Amberjack as well with a diff, not a satellite tag, a different type of tag, but we were able to tag one off of, um, I believe it was North Carolina, but it was recaptured in Belize. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah so there've, there've been a, a few more long distance movements than even we would have, you know, predicted. We assume they mixed in Western to Eastern Gulf, but not <laughs> from North Atlantic to Central America. Do you guys have any data that would support the idea that red snapper do migrate? Uh, so most of our migration stuff for snapper tends to be from inshore to offshore. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they get older, you know, uh, snapper move further offshore. In the colder months, they do come back in a little bit. Um, but storms actually can cause red snapper to have huge movements. And I mean, like from north central Gulf of Mexico all the way over to Florida. Okay. Um, so most of their huge movements are due to. Due do they to come the, back just, when that happens? Not always. Huh. Yeah, not always. So there is some data that supports the idea that they can migrate if there's a natural disaster. Yes, but not enough that it would be beneficial to base Texas biomass for Florida fishes. Okay, perfect, perfect. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, what is the what is that website one more time if folks want to check out uh, what yes. you guys are doing? Uh, sportfishresearch.org. Perfect. Um, well, Dr. Banks, thank you so much for the time today. It's been nice getting to know you and I'm sure we will do this again somewhere on down the road. Yes. Feel free to call us anytime. We're always happy to talk science. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. So there you go. Everything you need to know on the shark research going on with the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies with uh, Dr. Kesley Banks. Appreciate her jumping on today. Also appreciate our other guest, uh, Jeff Lucas of the Montana Wildlife Federation. That segment was proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy and the good folks over at Kent Cartridge. 
Um, unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. I can't believe hunting season is finally here. Uh, until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great dove opener, and we'll see you next week. I gotta go now. I guess I'll see you around. Don't know when though. Never know when I'll be back in town.